Welcome to Life-Altering Events with Frank Sakari. When something positive or negative changes in our lives, we are basically at a fork in the road. Where does the next step take us? What do we do as reactions to something that has already happened? How do we prevent the negative aspects from happening again? Whether in business or personal parts of your life, you can get back on track. We'll talk about it today. Now, here is your host, Frank Sakari. Good morning. My name is Frank Sakari, and you are listening to Life Altering Events. This is our 52nd show, so this is one year today. Our sponsor today is the Tag Team. Now, the Tag Team is a collaboration with the Abraham Group, which is headed by Jay Abraham, the best marketing mind and business business builder in the world. And he has increased the bottom lines for over 10,000 customers by more than $21 billion. And my company, Life Altering Events, who are experts in business organizational development, as well as finance and scaling organizations. The tag team members have all reached a point in our life where we want to see the next generation of businesses thrive. This is an elite and exclusive program for entrepreneurs who are looking to make a difference in the world and get the best possible return on their business. If you think you can make a difference, go to my website, franksakari.com, for application details. Now, ladies and gentlemen, for the past 52 weeks, most of my guests have talked about a life-altering event that happened directly to them. They somehow found the courage to pick up the pieces and start moving forward toward better times and better people, and I hope they've inspired you. But what if your life-altering event didn't happen directly to you? What if it happened directly to a loved one? An illness suddenly befalls your child. Your sibling is injured in an accident. Or your spouse unexpectedly has a stroke. Now what? We know the impact on them, but what's the impact on you? Your life has also been dramatically altered. Whatever your life was prior to to this event is either put on hold or it's changed forever. You must learn a whole new life. Suddenly, without any training or preparation, you become a caregiver. Will you be able to adjust to this new role? How will you survive when the main and possibly the only priority in your life is being a primary caregiver? You didn't sign up for this. Many people can't or won't be able to adjust. Many times, One parent leaves after a tragedy occurs to a child. One or more siblings simply drop out when a brother or sister is injured. Marriages often end and families fall apart. So what will you choose? Have you considered it? It's not a pleasant thought, but you are now at a fork in the road and you have to make a choice. So today we're going to talk about surviving long-term caregiving. So what would you do? You walk into your bedroom, discover your spouse is laying on the floor, unresponsive and unable to move half of their body. This is what my guest, Dave Nassani, found one day in 1996. Let me tell you something about Dave before we bring him in. He is a speaker, a syndicated radio show host, a life coach, and the best-selling author of the book, It's My Life Too, thrive and stay alive as a caregiver. However, with all his accomplishments, 
Dave's most important role is a primary caregiver to his lovely wife, Charlene, who suffered a massive stroke in 1996 that left her severely speech impaired and paralyzed on the right side. David, welcome to Life Altering Events. Great. Thank you for having me. It's our pleasure, Dave. Dave, tell us what your life was like before uh, Charlene's stroke. Well, I was just a normal guy (laughs) living a normal life. I have a gas station. Um, And, you know, I, I met this girl when I was 20 years old, and she was an older woman. I had no romantic inclinations toward her. But uh, I was a sailor. I still am a sailor. I sail boats. And I was looking for bodies for this particular sailing trip. And so I was at a friend's house and uh, saying, okay. But she had her girlfriend over, and her girlfriend was eavesdropping, overhearing our conversation. And all of a sudden she says, I want to go sailing too. And I look up, and she looks familiar. And I says, do I know you? She goes, yeah, I'm John's wife. I says, oh, and then she interjected and says, ex-wife. I says, oh, I'm sorry. She says, don't be. He was a real jerk. (laughs) Anyway, she goes, so I want to go sailing. I said, you know, so I got to say, John was this guy who used to go sailing with me because he, uh, everyone else had excuses. Oh, no, I got to work and this and that because I I would go during the the week because I was a student. (laughs) I had lots of time on my hands in between classes. And I always wondered, wow, this doesn't this guy work? You know, well, he had a perpetual garage business, garage sale business in his home, so he had very flexible hours. So we went sailing a lot. And one time he brought his wife, and I remember, and these guys are old, you know, they're like 10 years older than me. I was 20, they were 30. Mm-hmm. And um, so I says, uh, you went sailing with me once, right? She goes, yeah. And I said, did you get sick? She goes, no. I said, you can come. <laughs> so I said, great, you know three bodies down, two to go. I'm just looking for bodies for the boat. And the next day, something strange happened. She calls me up. I don't know where she got my number from. I didn't give it to her. He says, hi, this is Sarlene. I just want to thank you for inviting me to go sailing. And uh, I'm saying to myself, didn't she know that she's got to pay $20? (laughs) And she goes, I just, in appreciation, I want to uh, invite you to my house uh, for dinner because I'm a gourmet cook. Well, I didn't know what gourmet meant. But being a starving student at USC, I says, okay. So I showed up. Uh, a couple days later, I knock on the door. The door opens up. And all of a sudden, I'm, I'm hit with three distinct aromas. Uh, the first one was uh, what must have been her perfume. It was, I later found out, Giorgio. It smelled pretty darn good. The second was a familiar scent to me. It was the 70s. It was incense. <laughs> and then the third... <laughs> The third smell was really nice. It was this aroma coming from the kitchen. And I didn't know what it was. See, I'm Middle Eastern. And in my childhood, it seemed like I thought there were only two kinds of food in the world. Syrian food and burnt meat, because that's how my father liked his meat. Well done. <laughs> and uh, my, I had a very undeveloped palate. And, and I've never smelled anything like this before. And then I, I looked in the background. I noticed all this happens like in a split second. It's almost like everything froze, if you see on a TV show, except for me. you know. And all this is happening uh, in real time, but it really was just a split second. 
I see candles burning in the in the background, and uh, you know, flickering. And then I I hear music, unforgettable. That's what you are. And I'm saying, oh my god, I'm on a date. <laughs> and then I freaked out. I said, oh my god, do I want to be on a date with this older woman? Because I mean, you know, in those days we didn't trust anybody over thirty. And that's right. This woman was was thirty, which seemed like so ancient at the time. And uh, I looked at her. I says, "Let me check her out." You know, top to bottom, and she looked pretty good. She was wearing this boo boo thing that they wore in Hawaii. And I said to myself, "I can do this." And then reality came back. Uh, time unfroze, and she says. You're going to love what I cooked for you. It's an eight-course meal. And the theme of the evening is everything is stuffed. We have stuffed uh, uh, appetizers, stuffed caviar, stuffed Cornish game hens, stuffed dessert, and uh, some other things that were stuffed. I don't remember. But uh, by the end of the evening, I certainly was stuffed. Well, needless to say, uh, when we went on the sailing trip the following week, uh, she was my girlfriend. <laughs> I was only used to going out with teeny boppers at the time. And um, we went on this sailing trip. We left at midnight from Marina del Rey over to Catalina Island. Took uh, eight hours to get there. And uh, when we got there, it was it was uh, great. Great weather. Uh, I had a, my crew of misfits, I call them, because I, I just get them from my uncle and my father's and my brother's gas stations, you know. And, uh, uh, you know, they smoked weed and they drank beer and, and I would say, now just watch this compass and make sure that, you know, we get there. Cause if you miss, uh, Catalina, the next landmass is Antarctica. We're not going to Antarctica. <laughs> so everybody had a great time. Uh, that evening we went to sleep on the boat and it was just really nice. The wind started picking up, rocking the boat. And look, I remember looking up, you know, Santa Ana winds, it cleared all the fog and the haze away. And there were just billions and billions of stars. My girlfriend and I are looking up through the hatch, you know, and we see shooting stars. It was just, it was, it was like a, a movie. It was great. And then the next, next day, I wake up to a small craft advisory flag just fluttering in the wind. And the winds had gone to 30 miles an hour, and the waves were at 10-foot uh, swells. And I'm saying to my crew, I says, you know, I don't think we should go back today because uh, it was a two-day trip, you know. And I says, I, uh, maybe we should wait another day. And they says, no, no, we can't do that. Your, your brother will fire me. Your, your father will fire you, you know. So I saw I had a mutiny on my hands, you know. And uh, I didn't have experience in going through a storm like that. So I says, you know, I'm going to go ashore and see if I can find somebody who can give me some good advice, a really seasoned uh, sailor, you know. So I'm looking, I'm looking, I finally see a guy sitting on the beach. He's a real old guy. His face is, like, really weathered. You can tell he's been in the sun forever. And he's got his white beard down to his belly button. And he was smoking this corn cob pipe. And he had a, a hat on that said, Captain. I says, that's the guy. <laughs> I went and talked to him. I said, hey, how you doing? He says, yeah. I says, uh, would you go out on a day like this? He looks up at the flag fluttering. He says, not if I didn't have to. I says, well, we kind of have to. Uh, what advice could you give me? He says, uh, it's going to be cold. It's going to be wet. It's going to be rough. And so he gave me some advice of, of what to do and, you know, how to lower the sails to half mast and how to hit the waves at a 45-degree angle so that 
when the boat's at the top of a swell, it doesn't just fall 10 feet to the bottom of the swell and crack your hull. And, and uh, he says, oh, by the way, you got uh, foul weather gear? I says, no. He says, too bad. It's going to be wet. So I went back and told my crew the, uh, the verdict of the report. And they says, we're in, we're in, you know. It sounded exciting. Now, maybe it was the weed they were smoking, but <laughs> uh, we decided to do it. And so the first hour was really neat. It was really fun, exhilarating, you know. Uh, every wave uh, that we hit, you know, was this fine mist. And I felt like the Old Spice guy in a commercial. And then after that, it started getting pretty miserable. You know, my, my Navy peacoat now weighed 100 pounds because it was soaking wet. And the wind was just trying to go through me like a knife and I looked behind me and all my crew is turning green and getting sick and barfing over the side and I, one guy kind of freaks out he goes we're gonna die we're never gonna see land again I said shut up I've been through storms worse than this we'll get back just do your job and uh, uh, I look at my girlfriend uh, did I tell you this is only our second date yeah and she's cold and she's shaking and she's barfing I said oh man she's never gonna want to go out with me again so the next seven hours was really miserable. Everyone was mostly quiet. And and finally, I hear somebody say, Land Ho! I look up and I can see the lights of Marina Del Rey Harbor uh, just as the sun is coming down and everybody's high-fiving. Yeah, I knew we'd get back. Said, no, you didn't. My girlfriend said, <laughs> I knew he'd, he'd get me back. And uh, so she did go out with me again and again and again. And eight, uh, how many? 15 months later, we got married. And so fast forward, you know, she had two kids from a previous marriage, five and ten. Everyone said I'm crazy. And she had a crazy ex-husband, but he never bothered me because, you know, he went sailing with me. And I guess uh, he didn't come around much. And I, he must have approved of uh, of me because he he was uh, slashing the tires of her previous boyfriends. Because, you see, he had, he had abused her one time, and one time was enough for her. He, uh, he came home high on speed, and he uh, beat her up, and he gave her two black eyes and broken nose, and and then he felt oh remorse and wanted her back and was stalking her and didn't want her dating anybody, and and she just says, "You did it once, you'll do it again. No way." And um, so uh, we had a baby uh, together, um, so that three daughters, and we raised them all. We got them all out of the house. We even got them all married off, <laughs> each one twice. And just when we were getting into the emptiness phase of life, this was like 22 years later, we had just a wonderful life together, beautiful, hardly ever argued about anything. It, it just seemed too good to be true, you know? And all of a sudden, she complains to me about this headache she had for three days. She called it the headache of her life. She wanted me to call Dr. Kevorkian to put her out of her misery. <laughs> well... That headache turned into a stroke, and she lost her speech, became paralyzed on one side, and the life had turned upside down for us. Uh, pretty miserable. Uh, for the next two years, uh, it was like a living hell for both of us. Uh, Charlene was angry and bitter most of the time, and she took that out on me. And finally, I just, I just didn't think I can go through this anymore, so I sat down and I wrote her a letter. I said, Charlene, why are you so mean to me? It's so hard being your husband, taking care of you 24-7, not feeling any crumbs of appreciation or love in return. I know it's hard on you, but you're making it even harder on me. I just don't think I can 
be with you anymore. I mean, I'll take care of you financially, but I just can't be with you. So I looked at that letter, Frank, and I, I read it over and over again. I said, how can I give this letter to my wife of 22 years, the woman that, uh, that I loved and my soulmate and, and the mother of my children? You know, I, I just couldn't do it. So I just filed it away in my filing cabinet, went on in my misery and my loneliness and my isolation. But then something cool happened. I discovered there was a, um, a business card in my pocket. I don't know who gave it to me or how it got there. You know, maybe it was when I was living in the hospital with her for six weeks, sleeping in the bed beside her. They kind of let me did th- do that, break the rules. But it was inviting me to a caregiver support group. I didn't even know what a caregiver was, let alone a support group. <laughs> but I figured, well, maybe I should go. Maybe whoever gave this to me said I need it. And what do I got to lose? So I did it. And I met people who were just like me. Everything changed for me. Uh, I learned that if I didn't take care of me, I couldn't take care of my wife. I was reminded how the airlines tell us in the event of an emergency, put your oxygen mask on first before you help your loved one with their mask. Otherwise, you're both going down. And so I just started taking care of me so I could take care of her. Felt a little selfish at first, but, you know, uh, I figured uh, they told me to do it, so I'm going to do it because they know what they're talking about. And after, you know, a couple of years, it was a slow process, but she realized that I wasn't, uh, you know, accepting uh, the misery that she was dishing out. You know, misery loves company. And so I would just... uh, you know, go into another room and let her have her temper tantrum or whatever. And, and then I would go away and visit some relatives that I uh, hadn't seen in decades in, in a different state, New York, Nashville, uh, Florida. I got all these relatives, cousins. And uh, I just I brought her mother in to watch her while I took a weekend off because I needed to recharge my batteries. And she didn't like that. But you know what? When I came back, I was refreshed. I had a new attitude, new look on life until the following month where I had to do it again. But uh, she slowly started coming around. I think she just realized that, that uh, you know, uh, she wasn't going to make me miserable. And, and uh, if she wanted a life, that she probably would have to model me instead of me modeling her. So she started becoming her old self again, slowly. And our love was rekindled. And then I started realizing that there are other caregivers out there who are suffering all alone, and I didn't want them to suffer anymore. I didn't want them to go through what I went through. I didn't want them to give up like I almost gave up. So I became Dave the Caregiver's Caregiver. And as Dave said, the Caregiver's I, I Caregiver. Dave, let's take a break, right? <laughs> Stop right there, and then we'll all get right. into the caregiving. We have to take a break. Ladies and gentlemen, this story is going to get better and better. Do not go away. what makes the most successful people tick. Keep listening to the Voice America Empowerment Channel. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com Book Frank Zakari as the motivational speaker at your next event. Frank is a dynamic, entertaining, and fascinating storyteller. Your organization will be entertained and will learn stories of success they can implement immediately. Email Frank today to secure him for your next event at lifealteringeventsradio at gmail.com or call 916-718-5517. 
Mention that you heard about it from the Life-Altering Events radio program. You can also visit Frank's website for more information at frankzakari.com. Frank Zakari has written five books spanning a range of life-altering events and how to handle them. When the Wife Cheats is about a man with two young daughters handling the devastating loss of a cheating wife. Inside the Spaghetti Bowl is about how one family stays together through both good and bad. Five Years to Live follows a couple through life after a tragic accident, recovery, and prognosis. From the Ashes is a turnaround management success story about the University of Washington volleyball team. Find the books at Amazon in print, audio, and Kindle formats and at frankzakari.com. Multiple studies show us that the vast majority of people are disengaged at work. A Gallup report stated that two-thirds of American workers are unhappy and 15% actually hate their work. That means that 81% are not engaged to work for a common goal. Frank Zakari and his team have programs to help you change this dynamic and create a collaborative and high-performing organization. Visit frankzakari.com to set up an initial consultation today. Find out what makes the most successful people tick. Keep listening to the Voice America Empowerment Channel. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com You are listening to Life-Altering Events with Frank Zakari. To call into the program today with questions or comments, please call 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Or you can send an email to lifealteringeventsradio at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. We are having just a fascinating conversation with my guest today, Dave Nassani. Now, Dave found his wife of 22 years, had a stroke, walked into their bedroom, and she had suffered a stroke. It left her speech impaired, severely speech impaired, and paralyzed on the right side of her body. This is after raising their family and finally getting to the point where they have the emptiness syndrome and they have time to do all the things that they dreamed of and wanted to, to do with their life. Before we bring Dave back, I want to bring in to mention our sponsor today is the Tag Team, which is a collaboration of the Abraham Group headed by Jay Abraham, the most successful marketing mind in the world, and he's increased the bottom line of over 10,000 clients by $21 billion, and my company, Life Altering Event, who are experts in business organizational development as well as finance and scaling organizations. This is an elite group for entrepreneurs who think they can make a difference. If you think you're that... Go to my website, franksakari.com, and look for the application details. Now, let's get back to Dave. We, Dave, we just went through how you met your wonderful wife, the experience you had, the, the courting, raising three daughters, which my heart goes out to you. I have two daughters, and that was difficult. Yeah. Having three would be <laughs> a little bit Yeah, I'm be even, outvoted. Yeah, on everything. Yeah. We touched on... The challenges of coming back and, and the things that you and Charlene had to come to grips with. Now, Dave, I was a, I was a medic in the military during the end of the Vietnam War. And I witnessed uh, several very life-altering events, sudden life-altering events. And I saw many times that the affected party and or the caregivers committed suicide or they divorced yep. or they just gave up. Now, how did you and Charlene avoid this? 
Well, yeah, you're so right because, you know, we went to uh, a support group and so many, we found a, a support group specifically for strokes and specifically for young stroke victims. And we were amazed at how many spouses were there by themselves because uh, the other spouse kind of just says, hey, I didn't sign up for this. And, and uh, you know, I remember one was served divorce papers when they were still in the hospital. And, I mean, it was, it was just terrible. You know, apparently, they didn't take their vows seriously. And let's face it, um, I almost uh, left my life because I was not putting my needs first and I was allowing her to, you know, make me feel bad and make me feel guilty. And it's very important to have boundaries as a caregiver, especially a spousal caregiver, because now you're wearing two hats. You're, you're not a spouse anymore. Now you're a caregiver and a spouse. And, you know, that can get really tricky. Um, you know, if Charlene didn't come around and she continued in her, you know, negative ways, uh, I don't think we'd still be married today. But, you know, I modeled, uh, I followed their advice. I said, you know, take care of you. And, you know, she's, she's eventually going to come around. She doesn't want to be on the outside. She wants to enjoy life, too. She finally made her peace with God. You know, we both had very strong faith before this, and it's even stronger now. And so um, God had spoken to her uh, and, and told her that it's going to be okay, you know, whatever that means. <laughs> that now uh, she just smiles and looks up and points her finger up to God and, and pats her heart and says, God, you know, she knows about 12 words or so, uh, Dave, yes, no, and, you know, to get her around. She's a very good communicator. I mean, she still cannot speak, but she communicates excellently. Uh, I get about 80% of what she's trying to say, and people are amazed at that. But, uh, you know, she speaks through Pictionary and charades, uh, gestures, uh, tonality, you know, uh, Pictionary charades, two games I hate, by the way, but I'm, I'm trying to learn to love because that's her language. Um, and she still can't walk, obviously, but I bought her this power wheelchair, and we travel the world uh, together. And, um, you know, the chair is great. I mean, she goes faster than I do, and, and uh, I'm having arthritis in my feet now. I'm going to... I uh, have to get some uh, uh, surgery on my ankle because I had a bicycle accident seven years ago. This car turned in front of me, never healed right, and now arthritis. Uh, I'm in a lot of pain with my feet. And so uh, I'm going to have to do each foot and get surgery on each one. So can you imagine uh, two wheelchairs, you know, like bumper cars in the house because uh, she has a backup chair, and I've basically been using it stay off my feet until my surgery date. But, um, yeah, you know, I can imagine that my, uh, my youngest brother was paralyzed. In a, go ahead. My youngest brother was paralyzed in a car accident 35 years ago and has the big power chair. I, I couldn't imagine two, two power chairs and, and one in tight location like that. It, it's fun. It's fun. But you know, we get along. We've been together 45 years now and we're as happy as we ever are. And, People, you know, feel sorry for me and say, oh, that poor guy, you know, I, I really don't see it that way. You know, I, I just live a, a normal life. It's just a new normal. Um, I'm still married to the woman. She's not exactly the same woman I married, but close enough, you know, she still cooks and cleans. I'll come home, you know, the laundry's done, dinner's on the table. Remember, she's a gourmet cook. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, she can put on a dinner party. I mean, she's like a one-armed wallpaper hanger. I don't know how she does it. I looked for the elves in the room who, who helped her. and No, she did it all by herself. But she's very independent, and I'm very thankful for that. She can bathe herself with minimal help from me, getting her in the shower. She goes to the bathroom by herself, you know, wipes. Uh, I mean, I am a blessed man. I got nothing to complain about. That's amazing. What a great story. Now, Dave, I read your book, which I absolutely loved. And after a uh, sudden and dramatic change, like, like you experienced, um, you wrote that many caregivers actually die before their loved one, or they become sicker than the one that they're caring for. And in the book, you talked about the three biggest mistakes caregivers make by putting them, their, themselves at a higher risk of death or hospitalization. Go into that for our listeners, please. Yeah, you're right. It's amazing. 30% of caregivers, about a third of them, actually don't make it, and their caregivers outlive them. And many more than that become hospitalized themselves and, and need a caregiver of their own. And that's why you need to take care of yourself. If, if you would just do uh, these three things I'm about to tell you, that you would greatly reduce your risk of dying or becoming hospitalized. Because what happens to your loved one when you can't care for them? Well, another sibling might take over, and that sibling might not be uh, as good a caregiver as you, might not be as compassionate or empathetic. They might just stick them in a nursing home. And let me tell you, uh, nine out of ten nursing homes, I wouldn't put my cat in. <laughs> uh, but they're very hard to find. you got to do your homework with a nursing home, uh, by the way. You know, you got to uh, show up there unannounced, uh, do the smell test. you got to look and see if they're just parking wheelchairs in the hallway where their loved ones are just uh, staring at the walls, uh, see if they've got, uh, you know, activities to keep them uh engage and so on. So that's how you find a a nursing home because one day a caregiver is going to have to uh, realize that their loved one needs 24-7 care. And uh, if they don't do something differently, then that's how they burn out. That's how they die. That's how they're hospitalized. They're trying to provide 24-7 care and nobody can do that. It takes a facility. So here's the three things. Number one, uh, yeah, these are mistakes to avoid. Um, caregivers have to put their needs first. Uh, I already described, uh, you know, uh, we go on the plane and we kind of ignore them when they say, put your oxygen mask on first. But, you know, if you don't take care of your needs first, like the analogy of the airplane, you're both going to go down. The second biggest mistake is caregivers don't know how to ask for help. And, um, you know, I'm an auto mechanic and I don't like to ask for help. And I'm the caregiver's caregiver, and even I <laughs> don't like to ask for help. Uh, about a year ago, I was uh, using a skill saw, which I know how to use, but I was cutting this very long piece of molding, and there were people around. I could have asked them for help, but I didn't, and I don't know why I didn't. You know, maybe I didn't want to feel indebted. Maybe I didn't want to bother them. Maybe I, I just wanted to say, I can do this myself, you know, like a two-year-old. But uh, it got away from me, and my, it cut my thumb down to the bone, and I severed the ligament, and I, I, they, I needed a plastic surgeon to put it all back together again. Just so much pain. So uh, I use the analogy, everyone's got a cell phone. You know, use it. Um, you pick it up, you, you dial a number, and you talk. Hello, Mom? I need help. Rabbits are me crazy. You know, Call your brother, call your sister, call your wife, sick husband, call anybody, but get over that silly notion. If you can't do this 
all by yourself that you're a failure as a caregiver. That attitude will kill you. The third biggest mistake caregivers make is they don't know how to, um, well, let me just say they allow people to pile on the guilt like they were stacking pancakes. I think of this show back in the 70s about this caregiver who was caring for uh, his elderly father in the junk business. It was called Sanford and Son, remember? Yes, I remember it well. Sanford was notorious for guilting his poor son, Lamont, into doing all sorts of cockamamie harebrained schemes that he had no business doing. It was something like this. Oh, oh, it's a big one. No, son, really, it's a big one. Elizabeth, I'm coming to meet you, honey. It's the big one. And Lamont would fall for that con every single time. And caregivers are the same way. You know, they, they have to realize that they need boundaries because that kind of guilt is like being handcuffed to your loved one with a life sentence of, in caregiver prison with no possibility of parole. And that kind of guilt will kill you. So you do those three things and you've just moved into the two-thirds that's probably going to survive, but uh, not just survive caregiving, but thrive if you continue to do those three things or not do those three things, I should say. Well, I appreciate uh, that input. And, and uh, my mother died maybe 10, 11 years ago now. And my dad, they were both Italian, Italian from New York. <laughs> and my dad was no way in hell was he going to have anybody come and do anything. He's a stubborn right. old Italian and. And it was killing him. And it got to the point where one of my sisters happened to be home, and we knew my mother was, was going to die. The, the disease had progressed. And she finally told him, you're going to back off because I'm not burying both parents this year. Mm. And then the light went on, and he allowed the help to come in that uh, was necessary. And then he lived another 11 years. He just died in January um, at age 90. So that was a, well, that, that was, it was enormous. Yeah, that was smart of your sister to do that. You know, people just have they need a wake up call because uh, you know don't wait till the last minute. I mean, you know, you have a phone. I have a phone, and I see it's down to five percent, and I say I better get my charger, and I'll get distracted. Nothing happens. Next thing I know, it's at one percent. I'm on a very important call. It's flashing. You know, danger, Will Robinson, or I own a gas station. And don't ask me how many times I run out of gas. You know, keep your tanks full, keep your batteries charged. Don't wait till the last minute, because stuff happens. You know, it does. It does. One area of your book that I thought was really interesting was you, you called it caregiver burnout, and you had a care formula. Would you share that with the listeners? Yes, care. C A R E. So. Um, C stands for communicate with your friends. Don't isolate yourself. You know, caregivers need to have friends and don't just rag on them about, you know, what your loved one did today and how, you know, uh, bad she's treating or this and that. You know, save that for your support group. That's what they're there for. You, You can vent on them and they can vent on you and you both feel better. You both go home. Your friends need to have the normal days, the old days, so that they feel comfortable coming around. You know, nobody loves a Debbie Downer. And if you start acting like a burned-out caregiver to them, then they're not going to call. They're not going to come around, and you're going to be isolated. And you don't want that to happen. So save the complaints and the, 
and uh, you know all of that's for your caregiver support group. And by the way, you need a, a support group. If you don't think you do, then you're just fooling yourself. Um, a, ask for help and be specific. We always talked about, you know, uh, it's amazing how people will come up to a caregiver and say, hey, you know, I'm here. If you need anything, just call me. And he's, oh, no, 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 I got it. I got it. You know, can you actually believe that caregivers are turning down help because they don't want to be indebted? They don't want to bother you or, you know, well, we already went through that. Just don't let that happen. R, rest. Caregivers need eight, you know, eight hours rest every single night. The average caregiver only gets two or three. Gosh, I couldn't survive on two or three hours. I need my full eight hours. I don't know about uh, how they can do that. And E, eat healthy, nutritious foods. Don't eat junk food. Junk food's got sugar and chemicals, processed ingredients. All of that stuff will kill you. And so that's why I wrote my book. That's why I started my membership website, caregiverdave.com. Ladies and gentlemen, we're up against another break here. This story is is absolutely amazing because at some point in our life, we, we're going to be faced with this. And you have to take care of yourself. And Dave is the expert at it. We're going to get more into his consulting practice when we come back. Don't go away. up to your fullest potential. This is the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Book Frank Zakari as the motivational speaker at your next event. Frank is a dynamic, entertaining, and fascinating storyteller. Your organization will be entertained and will learn stories of success they can implement immediately. Email Frank today to secure him for your next event at lifealteringeventsradio at gmail.com or call 916-718-5517. Mention that you heard about it from the Life Altering Events radio program. You can also visit Frank's website for more information at frankzakari.com. Frank Zakari has written five books spanning a range of life-altering events and how to handle them. When the Wife Cheats is about a man with two young daughters handling the devastating loss of a cheating wife. Inside the Spaghetti Bowl is about how one family stays together through both good and bad. Five Years to Live follows a couple through life after a tragic accident, recovery, and prognosis. From the Ashes is a turnaround management success story about the University of Washington volleyball team. Find the books at Amazon in print, audio, and Kindle formats and at frankzakari.com. Multiple studies show us that the vast majority of people are disengaged at work. A Gallup report stated that two-thirds of American workers are unhappy and 15% actually hate their work. That means that 81% are not engaged to work for a common goal. Frank Zakari and his team have programs to help you change this dynamic and create a collaborative and high-performing organization. Visit frankzakari.com to set up an initial consultation today. Live up to your fullest potential. This is the Voice America Empowerment Channel. You are listening to Life Altering Events with Frank Zakari. To call into the program today with questions or comments, please call 1 888 346 9141. That's 1 888 346 9141. Or you can send an email to lifealteringeventsradio at gmail.com. Now, 
back to the show. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. This is our third segment with Dave Nassani. And if you missed the first two, pick them up later today on demand. You don't want to miss this conversation. This is really, really an intriguing story. One more time, I want to thank my sponsor today, the tag team. It's a collaboration between Jay Abraham and my company, Life Altering Event, to help the next generation of businesses thrive. Now, last segment, Dave ended. He was talking about the CARE program, C-A-R-E, his program that he uses to help caregivers to survive, to avoid the burnout, to get past the challenges that they're going to have to face. Now, Dave, one of the things that we had talked about um, when we spoke and I read in your book is grief. Grief is something that cannot be avoided, yet so many people put it off. Explain the grief process. Well, Frank, anytime someone suffers loss, we go through grief. You know, it could be uh, a teenager whose girlfriend just dumped them. It could be a doctor who says, uh, you know, you've only got three weeks to live, put your affairs in order. It could be the CPA who tells you, uh, I don't see any way uh, out of bankruptcy. It could be the divorce lawyer who uh, <laughs> hands you divorce papers, Check. whatever it is, uh, whether it's real loss or anticipatory loss, loss that you anticipate that's coming, you know, uh, you're going to go through the grief process. And I didn't know this at the time, and it's nice to know when you're going through something, <laughs> when you're going through it. So the first uh, uh, stage of grief is what they call denial. Uh, you say, oh my God, this isn't happening. You know, your brain just can't comprehend the shock that just happened. I'm, I'm sure everybody with this pan- pandemic, are, oh, what do you mean I can't go to work? What do you mean I have to close my business? But, you know, and it takes a while for the brain to figure this out because if somebody told you this like four months ago, you'd say, what are you crazy? You know? And uh, so we have to process the, the uh, information. And if we don't, then uh, we go into what's called uh, delusions, you know? We start making up our own reality to uh, make up for what we're hearing. I'm a, my mother-in-law was like that. You know, she had dementia, and it was slowly getting worse and worse and worse. And, and she just refused to talk about stubborn Italians. She was very stubborn. She refused to acknowledge there was anything wrong with her memory. And she would rather believe that somebody was breaking into her house every four hours, stealing her stuff, hiding her stuff, and then coming and putting it back just to drive her crazy. That was more palatable in her mind. (laughs) Calling the police three or four times a day, uh, changing the lock several times, than to just say, well, maybe my memory is going bad, right? That's denial. So we want to get out of that denial. Otherwise, you know, you become psychotic. So the next uh, stage of grief after your mind comes to reality that my God, this is happening. Uh, it's bargaining. Okay, how can I get out of this? You know, we try to negotiate out of it. Well, it's one thing to negotiate uh, out of your girlfriend dumping you. You know, you can call her up and say, well, can we still be friends? You know, you, you try to mitigate it. Uh, it's very hard to mitigate uh, when you've been giving a death sentence by the doctor with cancer or something like that. Or if your spouse actually dies, you know, who do you... Who do you bargain with uh, and negotiate with there? I mean, the only one is God. Uh, uh, you know, if if someone has a sickness, you know, uh, the foxhole Christians, remember? You're, mm-hmm. you got Absolutely. over your head, 
And God, if you get me out of this, I'll go to church every day for the rest of my life, you know? Uh, that kind of bargaining with God. But when you realize that bargaining doesn't really help, <laughs> the next stage is anger. You get pissed off. You know, you're angry at yourself. You're angry at the doctor. You're angry at the government. You're angry at God. Just it, whose fault is this? You got to blame somebody to, to feel better, you know? Well, after you pissed off all your friends and the doctor and everybody, you realize that didn't help. The next stage is usually the most damaging stage, and that's depression. Uh, this is where Robin Williams was, and Anthony Bourdain, and Kate Spade, you know, and many, mm-hmm. many caregivers. Actually, 50% of caregivers, there was a, a poll by AARP uh, that um, 50% of them admitted to feeling uh, down, depressed, and uh, hopelessness uh, just within the last two weeks. And those are the same um, feelings that a depressed person has just before they kill themselves. So suicide is a real issue for caregivers. In fact, they're uh, probably right up there in the people's group that is uh, mostly affected by suicide. We, we know that the biggest group of people uh, who die from suicide are teenagers, believe it or not. And yet Absolutely. there are also teenage um, caregivers between the ages of 8 and 18. There's 6 million of them uh, in the country. And, you know, those are the ones where the family has to go to work and you might be 8 or 10 and, you know, you have to stay home. You can't go to school today. you got to watch grandma, you know. And they don't get, uh, you know, two 10-minute tw- breaks like OSHA, like uh, the Labor Department says. They don't get a 30-minute meal period. You know, they're they're just out there being a caregiver at an age when they should be being kids. Well, the next stage, uh, oh, let me talk about depression for a moment. Um, you might be feeling clinical depression, and that means you probably need to uh, see a doctor. Uh, there's a difference between sadness and clinical depression, you know, where you don't want to get out of bed, where where you haven't showered in, in weeks or you know, you haven't eaten anything or you're eating too much. You know, you can eat a gallon of ice cream, whatever it is. Uh, you need to uh, maybe perhaps go on some antidepressants. And there's a lot of resistance against that. People say, well, I don't want to do drugs. You know, uh, they think it'll make them like a recreation drug, feel, make them feel, you know, groggy or, or not myself. But, you know, it's just going to restore the chemical imbalance in the brain. And then um, get on that that dosage, it might take a few weeks or a couple of months to find the right dosage and the right kind. So just be patient because it's better than the alternative. And then so finally, the stage that we're all looking forward to is acceptance, accepting the new normal and being okay with it. Like my wife did. She made her peace with God. She says, you know, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. Um, and that's a great place to be. And I had to come to that. We were both grieving. I went through this process as well. And now I'm okay, you know, and acceptance is a great place to be. And that's the grief process. Dave, in, in your, now you do counseling now for uh, caregivers and you, your book is all about uh, helping caregivers. When someone comes to you, what's the first thing you tell them? Well, <laughs> depends on what their problem is, but let's say, uh, they're, um, you know, they're feeling bad because uh, they feel like they're being wronged 
uh, bitterness, guilt, remorse. You know, they're just miserable. And uh, they're in one of those uh, four stages of grief before they get to acceptance. So my goal is to get them through the grief process, because everybody has to go through it. <laughs> you can't avoid it, can't go around it, over it, under it. you got to go through it. So I try to get them through it. So whatever stage they happen to be in, I try to get them uh, through the next stage and then the next stage and eventually uh, acceptance. I try to get them to accept what's happening. You know, uh, many times uh, they're doing okay, but they worry about things. They could, well, what if this happens? What if that happens? Anticipatory grief, right? You can't spend your life worrying about what could happen because 90% of what we worry about never happens. Think about your own life. Um, all the things you wasted time, wasted energy, wasted emotions, worrying about, it never happened. So uh, let's not worry about things that aren't going to happen, probably won't happen, and just concentrate on the things that are there, right? The Bible says, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough troubles of its own, and that's very good advice. So um, if they're going through situations where other people are making them miserable, we talk about boundaries. You know, you got to have boundaries. If someone's offending you all the time, first of all, get some thicker skin, and second of all, it's your fault because you never told them where the line was never to be crossed, you know? So you have to have that conversation. Listen, you did something yesterday that really hurt my feelings, and I don't like feeling like that, and I don't like having resentment toward you. So in the future, I am not going to tolerate this kind of behavior. If you cross the line, this will be the consequences. You know? And if it's your own kids, you say, uh, we're not just not going to have a relationship anymore, or if it's your parent. You know? And as a caregiver, you have uh, all the aces because... You are the caregiver. You call the shots. We can't have the inmates running the prison. We can't have the two-year-old running the household, okay? You have to, and I know it's, it's painful because it's a role reversal. Now, if it's your parent, you're treating them like a kid, and they're treating you like uh, a parent, you know? So uh, you just have to deal with it because this is the life you have. It's temporary. Don't make a permanent solution to a temporary problem. This, too, will pass. Dave, one of the things that you had in the book, which I which I thought was outstanding, is become a coach rather than a caretaker. Explain that difference. Well, you have to let your loved one know that they're in this. And like my wife, she had to take responsibility for what happened to her. She had to take responsibility for her behavior. She had to take responsibility. She was treating her husband like crap, and her husband wasn't going to stick around, and then she was going to be all alone, and God knows what would happen, you know? Our, our kids sometimes aren't the best caregivers because they have a life, you know? They call them the sandwich generation. They're taking care of, you know, uh, their uh, young children, and then something happens to their parent. Okay, now they're taking care of their parent, and maybe something will happen to their spouse. I call that the club sandwich generation. So... <laughs> You know, you just have to, uh, a sports analogy, you know, they are the ones on the field. They are the ones who have to get hit on the football field. They got to take the punches. So you're like a coach. Okay, get in there and, and uh, you know, try this next time, you know. And with my wife, uh, you know, our, our her mother was living with her at the time, and and she her mother wouldn't let her do anything. You know, she was turning in, her into an invalid. 
Oh, no, no, honey, let me get that for you. Oh, no, no, you can't do the cooking. Let me do the cooking. And I, I was her coach. I was her encourager. I said, listen, she's a gourmet cook. She needs to cook. She can do this. You just have to give her a chance. You know, she's reached for something on the top shelf. Mother says, oh, let me get that. I said, no, she can get it. I said, come on, honey, a little higher. Reach, reach here. Stand up. You know, stand on your toes. You're almost there. Yeah, you got it. And occupational therapists say, you know, um, if you don't want to create an invalid, you must let them feel like they're making progress. They can do small things, no baby steps, you know. And today, that's one reason why my wife is so independent, and I can have more freedom to go to work and, and not worry about her, or go on an overnight trip to uh, the speaking engagement, know she'll be all right, because I allowed her to learn how to do things, to learn how to fend for herself. Dave, we're just about out of time. We've got about one minute left. You had a statement in your book, and I hope I pronounce his name right, Spurgeon, the uh, great theologian of the 19th century. Yeah. And he said, most people will say, how can I get out of this? When we should instead say, what can I get out of this? Absolutely. What last words do you want to leave with our listeners? Yeah, um, you need help and you need resources. That's why I wrote my book. It's my life too. That's why I started my membership website. Um, it, there's a small cost in it, but I like to believe that unless you've got some skin in the game, unless you're, you're, uh, paying for something, uh, the, the subconscious says, well, this was free. So, uh, it must not be worth anything. You know, when I was coaching for free, nobody followed my advice because it was free advice, you know, but exactly what you, uh, you know, doctors charge if you don't show up for the appointment and that's what makes patients show up. For an early appointment when they were up all night because they know they're going to be charged a hundred dollars whether they show up or not so you've got to have some skin in the game if you don't value your life then i can't help you i can't want it more than you do so please buy the book go to the website i've got three free gifts on caregiverdave.com take them and let me help you to help yourself get on the right track for caregiving so you can thrive instead of just survive Ladies and gentlemen, we are just about out of time. This was a wonderful show. Thank you so much, Dave, for sharing your inspirational story. Thank you. And ladies and gentlemen, no matter what life throws at you, please do three things. Look up, get up, never, ever give up. Keep moving forward and better times and better people will come into your life. If you missed any of this show or you want to listen to any of our other shows, they're available on demand at any number of locations, including iHeartRadio, Alexa, Google, and my website. Let me leave you with this, ladies and gentlemen. None of us are in this alone. The secret to walking on water is to know where the rocks are. And today, <laughs> David showed us where many of those rocks are. Join us again next week for another life-altering event. Thank you for tuning into Life-Altering Events. Be sure to join Frank Zakari again next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time and 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Have a life-changing week. The Good Cut.